Yeah. If, if everyone just stopped and counted the actual number of people you see speaking about and thinking, it could be in the 30s, right? And it's 435 of us. Most of yeah. us are not on cable news. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, joined by the one and only Christopher Sands at Woodrow Wilson. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm great, Scotty. Nice to be back on Canusa Street with you. It's great to be back with you, and I'm very excited about our esteemed guest. Uh, Congressman Rick Larson has been um, active, I think, with both of our organizations. The Canadian American Business Council had a congressional roundtable uh, with the congressman recently. It was it was so illuminating. We had to bring him back to the podcast. Um, <laughs> but it's it's fun because he's from Washington. Uh, we're from Washington D.C. He commutes back and forth to Washington State, so that's a hell of a commute. But um, I'm excited to talk to the congressman about everything he's working on, everything we care about, and. And before we turn it over to that, why don't you introduce him properly, Chris? Oh, sure. Um, well, I, I feel like I'm welcoming him to our neighborhood. Uh, Representative Rick Larson was the congressman, is the congressman for Western Washington University, where I taught for a while. And uh, so I, I used to run into him in a very much more casual setting than Canusa Street in the podcast. But he's a legend in Washington State. He represents Washington State's second congressional district, which uh, he likes to say, and I've heard him say it, is north of Seattle, but includes none of Seattle. Uh, the second district includes a portion of Snohomish County along the I-5 corridor, as well as all of Whatcom, Skagit, Island, and San Juan counties. He recently became the lead Democrat, or as we say, ranking member, on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, where he is focused on making bold long-term investments in the whole nation's infrastructure to create jobs, drive economic growth, and to build a cleaner, greener, safer, and more accessible transportation network. This body, this Congress, needs to get to work on a long-term transportation bill that doesn't just patch our aging roads, but invest in an infrastructure that meets the needs of America's 21st century economy. He's a member of the New Democrat Coalition uh, and a strong advocate for pro-growth policies that support innovation, job creation, and sm a strong economic foundation. Now, here's the tricky bit. Uh, this is in my script, but I have to make sure I get this right. He wishes Canada the best of luck in group play in the upcoming Women's FIFA World Cup, but... He knows where his loyalties are. You will find him rooting for Team USA all the way. So a perfect uh, start to a Canusa Street visit. Welcome, Congressman. Excellent. I really appreciate that so much. And I definitely will be rooting for uh, Team USA, uh, U.S. Women's National Team. Um, but uh, I know Canada's good, and I'm not going to... Canada is a very, very good team. Well, you're a, you're a bit of an expert, Congressman. I mean, you played soccer. I don't know how long in, in your childhood you played, but then... Do I know this right? You were a ball boy for the Seattle Sounders. Is that is that a true story? It is a true story. I forget who they're playing, but this is in the old North American Soccer League, the NASL. And when the uh, Sounders joined MLS, of course, the Vancouver Whitecaps were still there and are still there. The Portland Timber are there, are still there. So the, the Cascadia rivalry is still very strong up here in the Northwest. Oh my gosh. Well, so just sticking with soccer for a second, how excited are you about the World Cup coming to North America? 
First off, I'm very excited for the U.S. women's national team playing uh, in the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand uh, and yeah. next with them. And then in 2026, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico are uh, the co-hosts for uh, Men's World Cup. Very excited. And, and one of the issues that we're trying to get some attention uh, on is the idea that you could, uh, since Vancouver and Seattle are both host cities hosting games, like uh, FIFA and U.S. soccer and the U.S. and Canadian governments to be thinking about how best to um, both get games scheduled back to back in Seattle and Vancouver so that uh, fans can just take the train from Seattle to Vancouver and back again, just see a game every other day and stay here in the Pacific Northwest or the Canadian Pacific, uh, just going back and forth and seeing some of the best uh, international soccer played. And it's a border issue. It's a transportation issue. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of information that has to take place to make that happen. You know what? It's also an immigration issue uh, because Chris, Chris and I were both in Mexico City uh, at something called the North Capital Forum last fall. We're going to and, and Canusa Street. We had a few podcasts uh, recorded down there. We're going to go back this fall. And one of the issues that was raised, Congressman, with the leaders from all three countries is, you know, is there a way to look at uh, particularly U.S. immigration, but immigration in all three countries, so it makes it easier for the fans uh, to get back and forth, Mexico, U.S., and Canada? And, you know, the answer the answer I've gotten from Homeland Security is like, good luck. Hell no. We're not going to we're not going to soften, wave, make exemptions like it's going to be an issue. But I wonder if you're hearing that kind it, of stuff. It will be a disaster if Homeland Security continues to take that stance. Um, rather than trying to find a way to facilitate um, uh, facilitate travel in this regard, because you're going to have folks on tourist visas, I presume, I presume yeah. we're uh, coming to the U.S. or coming into Vancouver. Yeah, I'm being a little harsh because there is a working group, and hopefully they're making progress. My, I'll turn it to Chris in a second, but my experience on this is with uh, the Vancouver Olympics and the Salt Lake Olympics and the Atlanta Olympics, yeah. where it was about getting athletes from all around the world. Um, so the fan base, I think, is much larger for FIFA. And the challenge, you know, we're going to have um, folks from all over the world, but just think of the, you know, Europeans who have the, the Schengen system where they're just quite used to getting on a train and going to the next country. That's not going to, that doesn't exist here and uh, on the North American continent. So you're going to have fans that they come in with a high expectation of travel. And, and certainly within the U.S. it won't be a problem. But if they want to go see their team in Montreal or Toronto or, or Vancouver, or they want to go to Mexico City, you know, it's it's going to be a real challenge. It's one that I think the U.S. and Canada and Mexico really need to tackle uh, because it is going to it's going to look rough for the U.S. Uh, if, if uh, there's there, there there will be problems. It's a matter of if they're going to be big problems or solvable problems, especially when the world is coming. The world it is the largest sport in the world. The world is coming to North America uh, to watch the uh, the beautiful game. I hope they have a beautiful time. Congressman, I, I think, and you could correct me here, I, I could have a faulty memory, but I think back when we were, uh, when Vancouver hosted the Winter Olympics in 2010, I heard you, as part of a Pacific Northwest Economic Region-sponsored uh, dialogue, talking about the two-nation vacation and getting U.S. and Canada to issue visas for our partners in uh, in Asia and in Europe and in Latin America to come and participate in the games so they could really just coordinate the visa applications so that it made it easy for people to come. And once they came to North America, not just see Vancouver, but see Seattle, see San Francisco, any place they want to go. Do you think there's any chance of reviving that kind of coordination for this big event coming up? 
Well, there are models uh, that the U.S. has already participated in. Uh, the, of course, Vancouver Olympics is one. Uh, the other uh, model would be the APEC Business Travel Card, which I was the mm. at the, at this age now I'm a grandfather of that. I'm supposed to father of the APEC Business Travel. Card. <laughs> but you know, we got that passed, made the law. Um, it's been a success. So there are models that, that we can use that are multinational models as well as just binational models that uh, hopefully you know we are we're we're pointing these out to the White House. Um, we're encouraging U.S. soccer. Um, as well to engage on this. And, and they're aware of it, but literally the ideal, maybe your listeners were talking about soccer, but this is really this really is broader than just the game, than, than the World Cup. And it's broader than the Olympics, uh, which will be in LA in 28. And, and I hope that U.S. soccer applies to host the uh, Women's World Cup in 27 this binational, multinational travel cooperation on the North American continent uh, are going to be very important uh, for our communities. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, I want to ask you, I want to switch gears from soccer, which is fabulous, and talk a little bit about uh, legislation and policy. So we'll be right back. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or Bald Eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo. Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-US relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. U.S. President Joe Biden on Monday unveiled plans to spread some $42 billion across the nation's 50 states and territories to create universal access to high-speed broadband internet in the next seven years. People strenuously opposed voting against it when we had this going on. They were, this was gonna bankrupt America. So Congressman, you're the ranking member on House Transportation Infrastructure. The White House seems this week to be um, rolling out a whole lot of promote infrastructure. The idea being the president maybe doesn't get enough credit for all of the work that you and Congress and his administration have done to invest in infrastructure. Talk to us, if you would, a little bit about about that, because it, it, the polling is showing the American people like the projects, but um, maybe the political credit doesn't doesn't follow. How do you think about these things? Well, I think individual members need to keep talking about the projects in their district and taking advantage of these announcements that are coming out, uh, recent announcements on broadband deployment. Uh, and recent announcements on transit, especially low and no emission transit, investing in that cleaner infrastructure, pulling those diesel emitting transit buses off the road, replacing them with uh, lower no emission buses. So from a, I think whether the president's getting credit for it, members on the ground can um, get credit for it, and that credit can flow up. But, uh, you know, there's a reason why I would argue there's a reason why unemployment rate continues to be low. There's a reason why predictions of recession continue to fall flat. Um, and part of that is the continued investment of these dollars from the bipartisan infrastructure law uh, over 
over the, you know, not just the last year and a half, but over the next four years, continue to provide op- employment opportunities for women and men in all sorts of uh, all sorts of areas. We're going to build the new roads, build the new bridges. Uh, the broadband um, uh, deployment is going to be incredible uh, in, in, a, in a very deep supply chain. Uh, craziest, you know, you, you do this job and you and you think, oh, I passed this law. This I, I know people are going to go to work. I just don't know who they are. I went to the um, um, wow, was it American Equipment Distributors Conference and spoke to them. These are the folks who build the tractors and the bulldozers. Yeah. Well, the, the folks, the Ditch Witch folks in Oklahoma, Ditch Witch is headquartered in Oklahoma, they're very excited about broadband because you need to dig ditches to put broadband fiber in the ground. It occurred to me how, until I talked to them, just how much – they're excited about what that's going to mean for their part of the business, building new um, uh, new uh, ditch witch equipment in order to help with broadband deployment. The, the point I want to get to here, Scott, is that that members really need to tie you know, right down to the ground, literally and figuratively, right down to the ground, what these dollars are going to mean at home. Um, it's harder when you're the president because you're the president of the whole country. It's easier when you're the member representing the second congressional district. Because I'll be in Point Roberts on Friday to talk about broadband. Right. Yeah. No, it's a good point. And just to your point about the equipment distributors, the equipment manufacturers are part of are part of my organization. So I'm glad you did a shout out to the big equipment. And you know, it's not just digging the ditches for the broadband, but it's also you know there are autonomous you know tractors and co- these giant pieces of farm equipment that c- can be autonomous, maybe, but. It doesn't work. I saw a demonstration of this in Montana, I think. Chris, maybe you were there too, a couple years ago. It can't work if you don't have the connectivity and the signal to send send these robots around. <laughs> so so broadband is a real is a key to very, many facets of, of life. And I, I, I think you make a good point about individual members touting the benefits. And I would know, just to, just to bring it sort of the issue, to the issues we're talking about here, part of the bipartisan infrastructure law included you know, a multi-million dollar um, investment in land ports of entry. And so in my district alone, the the Blaine um, commercial uh, crossing uh, at the Guide Meridian, the port of entry in Linden, the port of entry in Sumas are all slated to get major investment upgrades uh, in order to, those will, and those will largely uh, um, focus on the commercial traffic coming into the U.S. and back again uh, into Canada. Um, the I-5 crossing there, of course, is where most of the passenger um, vehicle passenger traffic goes. But uh, you know, BILs is a critical critical part of the investment in cross-border uh, facilitation of trade. Well, I wanted to follow up a little bit on that. I think of the of your district, uh, my time there, as really being kind of a transportation hub. You've got the beautiful port of Seattle-Tacoma, which I know is south of your district. You've got Packard that does uh, truck manufacturing. You've got Boeing, obviously, uh, aviation. Um, I know there's uh, there's been... When you talk about Point Roberts, uh, for a while during COVID, we were getting back and forth just on a ferry. The Washington State ferry system, you know, was a connector for that community. How do we approach the border with a vision of connectivity and getting people to where they're going rather than to what I think after 9-11 just became a kind of fortification of the border from another century, you know? And COVID made that tough, and that was a different sort of case, but still, we seem to be more about building fences and less about building connections. 
COVID, I would say COVID was unique. Uh, you know, I get a lot of get a lot of complaints from people in Bellingham and town of the border from Point sure. Robert, basically t- saying, Rick, you have to go tell the Canadians this. Tell them X, Y, Z. And I say, you, you know, I'd say, I won't. It's a different country. They have a different experience in COVID. They're actually, the COVID rates lagged far behind the U.S. They know there's no interest from Canada in opening up the border because of people living on the border because the COVID rates were, were lower, um, which I fully understand. So I think part of this is a, um, trying to get folks to understand there are two different countries we're talking about. If we start there, we can actually do almost anything. It's sometimes the attitude is that Vancouver is there for us. And Vancouver's view is like, well, not so fast. But I would also note during one of the first guys I hired in 2001 was a guy named Andy Anderson, bless his soul. He um, served with uh, Al Swift as well, who's a predecessor of mine. And Andy uh, would always say, number one lesson about the border, Rick, he goes, you will never solve the issues at the U.S.-Canada border. You can only manage them. Will you manage them well or will you manage them poorly? And that's a very realistic view, I think of, of uh, managing issues between two countries, because it is still two countries. Uh, we are still two countries. There are ways we can cooperate. We cooperate much better on law enforcement with Canada, between Canada and the U.S., than between U.S. and Mexico, as a, for instance. I'm, I'm basically writing laws about preventing our marine mammals, copying what Transport Canada and Canadian Coast Guard and others are doing north of, you know, in the Harrow Strait, basically just stealing their ideas and putting them into the U.S. law so we can harmonize our activities, our joint activities. So there are ways to cooperate, but, uh, you know, there are different rules on transport of weapons, in, you know, between U.S. and Canada, and that's an issue for law enforcement, but Canada has a sovereign right to make their decisions about, you know, weapon transport, even, even legalized weapon transport for law enforcement officers. So it's just things we have to manage well, and sometimes we have to manage them better than we have them. Well, and one one last bit of nostalgia from my time out there. I remember sitting down with DHS um, talking about moving students back and forth across the border, you know, for school trips kind of study. I do Canadian studies. And one of the things they were saying to us is, you know, you talk about Canada and the U.S. Well, there's the federal and there's the local. And the federal government says marijuana is a Schedule One narcotic. Uh, it is legal in, in Washington State. It's legal in B.C. And their big concern was that young people would forget that it was a big issue at the border where the federal law applied. So, I mean, there are a lot of players here. The border can be quite tough to manage. And giving people straight information about how it works, uh, I'm just so glad that you're out there being a bit of an evangelist or explainer on, on how the border works. Well, it's a great district to represent. I was born and raised here. My family and my dad's side has been here about 150 years. Uh, it's a privilege every day to, um, to re- represent it. So I want to do it well. So we're coming to the end of our time here. And I'm really grateful for the conversation. Congressman, I want to ask you, because you have been in Congress now um, for a while, you've seen a lot. Uh, you've seen all kinds of different administrations and speakers and all of that. And you've experienced some things you might have never imagined, like January 6th. I wonder how you feel about the state of our democracy. How are you feeling as a as a United States, a member of the House of Representatives? How is our representative democracy doing? How do you feel about it? Uh, I, I feel pretty good about it. it, it um, the, the resilience of our, of our dem- democratic institutions, with a small d, democratic institutions, really depend upon the resilience and the patience of the voters and people who participate. And when you look at what 
the voters are doing, how they are, how they discern issues. I'm always, I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm always surprised about how generally collectively the sophisticated voters are. They kind of see through the crud um, a lot of of times, but that doesn't mean we can't be vigilant. You know, we just saw the U.S. Supreme Court make a decision on voting rights. So you just never know. You mentioned January 6th, and not to dig too much too much into that, but for your Canadian listeners, um, you should know that it, the number of people who have been convicted as a result of actions on, on January 6th, 2021 is in the multiple hundred people serving, you know, multi-month, multi-year federal prison terms. And so I, I don't say that to bray or gloat or anything, but I'm saying that, that there are mechanisms within our democracy uh, in order to enforce democracy and enforce that, you know, enforce that freedom is kind of a weird thing to say. It's an ironic thing to say, if you will, but to ensure that that can vote, do get to vote, that our institutions are protected. Uh, those systems t- get a stretching uh, every once in a while. We've seen that over the last five years. It's really getting stretched, but it's pretty resilient um, as well. And I find that I would say as well, I was talking to some folks the other day about this, what you see on television about the U.S. Congress and the people you talk to, that's, you know, if, if everyone just stopped and counted the actual number of people you see speaking about and, and think it could be in the 30s, right? And it's 435 of us. Most of yeah. us are not on cable news. Most of us are actually doing the other work, the work of, of Congress. So just uh, I would I would throw that. I'm also a bit Pollyannish about it, but, you know, I've love the United States of America and I love our democracy. So yeah, I'm going to be always optimistic about it. Most, most congressmen do not appear on Canusa street, but uh, you will always be welcome back. Tell them all they got to get off. Excellent. Thank (laughs) you very much. We're working our way through. It's going to take us a couple hundred years, but uh, we're so happy you joined us, Congressman. It's, it's always good to see you and talk to you. And we're, we're appreciative of your service to our country and to the state of Washington. And, uh, and this has been a great chat. And we're all going to cheer for the women's national team now that you've flagged it for everybody. So good job. Very excited. I'm very excited about, I don't know what time I have to be up because it's uh, it's in New Zealand and uh, it's not my current time zone. <laughs> <laughs> Might be easier just to fly over right now. <laughs> and uh, Congressman, I learned something from you. I, you and I have this in common. I was a ball boy for the Detroit Express back in the NASL. People don't remember them, but they were they were good in their day. I thought it was a tennis thing, being a ball boy or a ball girl. I didn't realize soccer had it, too. Tells you tells you how much I don't know. What I don't know about soccer could fill an encyclopedia, as they say. <laughs> I don't know about that. But anyway, thank you so much for coming, Congressman. I mean... Chris, we've got a super fan of sports. We've got a super fan of democracy. I love that conversation with Rick Larson. What a what a cool guy. Well, and a super fan of infrastructure and being sensible about managing the border as an equal partner with the Canadians. We don't see that all the time either. And with all the frustration around his cool head and his desire to promote cooperation and get around some of the bureaucratic headaches that we have, inevitably two different systems, I think is a real uh, breath of fresh air. I think so too. The thing that cracked me up was when he said his constituents will say to him, go yell at Canada about whatever. 
And he's like, nope, I'm not going to yell at Canada. I thought, well, we yell at Canada. Every other <laughs> member of Congress yells at Canada. And they yell at us. That's one, of the, that's one of the benefits of being right across the street from each other is we can just holler to each other. <laughs> anyway. Yes. Canusa Street can be a noisy street sometimes. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, great to see you as always, my friend. Always a pleasure. And we'll see you next time on Canusa Street. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify.